Thank you for the reading of God's word. I would ask you to keep your place there in Philippians chapter number one this morning. Philippians chapter number one. We've come in our exposition of this letter to verses 27 through 30. Philippians 1 verses 27 through 30 as was just read. The great William Shakespeare wrote several plays involving King Henry V. And they begin with a young Prince Henry who was vain and indulgent, spending his time drinking and carousing. However, when Prince Henry's father, that is King Henry IV, took ill and was preparing to die, something changed for the young Prince Henry V. It was then that Prince Henry realized that the crown he would inherit would come to him through no virtue of his own. And so he confessed to his father saying, Father, on his deathbed, Father, you won it, you wore it, you kept it, and you have now given it to me. So then upon receiving the crown, Henry vowed to live a life worthy of that crown. And in the words of Shakespeare, this is what he said, The tide of blood in me hath proudly flowed in vanity till now. Now doth it turn and ebb back to the sea where it shall mingle with the state of floods and flow henceforth in formal majesty. Now, since no one can understand what Shakespeare writes, let me explain this to you a bit. I'll I'll interpret for us. As a young prince, Henry V was proud and vain. But When Henry V inherited that crown from his father, he determined and purposed to become one of the worthiest and noblest kings of England. His noble heritage flowed from him with majesty, and he protected and promoted the crown. And there is something of that idea for us this morning in our text in Philippians 1 verse 27. It says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so as it is, as saints in Christ Jesus, that's chapter 1, verse 1, or as citizens of heaven, that's chapter 3, verse 20, we are to live in such a way that protects the crown, the gospel of Jesus Christ. From Philippians 1, verses 27 to 30, I prepared a message titled, The Protection of the Gospel. Let me pause for prayer, and then we'll unpack the scripture text together. God in heaven, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And I thank you, Lord, for this fellowship and assembly of believers in the gospel. And Lord, we recognize now that we have a responsibility to walk worthy of the gospel. That is to protect the gospel that we've received. I pray that you would give us insight and understanding from this text this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. From Philippians 1, verse 27 through 30, I propose that each believer must stand fast, that's going to be number one, strive together, that's going to be number two, and suffer for the protection of the gospel. Look at verse 27, Philippians 1, verse 27, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. I propose, number one, each believer must be consistent in standing fast for the gospel. 
Each believer must be consistent in standing fast for the gospel. Now, in Paul's day, the term stand fast, there in verse 27, was used of of a soldier who maintained his position at all costs. It was used of a soldier who was strong and established in his place of assignment. Rain or shine, pain or pleasure, supervised or unsupervised, a Roman soldier could be sure and trusted to protect the crown. And as a Roman colony, the the Philippians would have had great pride in their Roman soldiers, and they would have understood Paul's command to stand fast. Now, when we think of, of standing fast, it can be understood both positively or negatively. We stand for God. We stand against Satan. We stand for truth. We stand against falsehood. We stand for righteousness and against sin. But practically, what does that look like, according to our text, Each believer must have a consistent practice. This is what standing fast for the gospel looks like, a consistent practice. And Paul mixes his metaphors in verse 24, or or, I'm sorry, verse 27. For while standing fast speaks of a soldier, the imperative there, conduct yourself, speaks of a citizen. Again, we're citizens of heaven, according to chapter 3, verse 20. And he is saying, behave the way citizens are to behave. Conduct yourself in a way that is consistent with your heavenly citizenship. And once again, the the Philippians, as a Roman colony, would have prized not just their Roman soldiers, they would have prized their Roman citizenship very much. They would have been very careful to act in a manner that was becoming of their citizenship. Let me illustrate. I, I know it's not politically correct, but we all engage at times in a bit of ethnic profiling from time to time. When I hear a non-Euro-American speaking a language other than English, it catches my attention. I don't judge or disparage them for them, but I, I recognize there is a non-Euro-American speaking another language. When I see a non-Euro-American wearing different clothing, it attracts my attention. And immediately, I might try to discern their citizenship by what I hear and what I see. The reverse has happened as well. As I've traveled abroad even recently in the country of Myanmar, we'll report on that this evening, Pastor Jared and, and I. But... As we travel in a different country or or culture at times, I've been asked, are you an American? To which I probably answer, yes. Now, what gave away my American citizenship? Maybe it was my English. Maybe it was my attire. I'm not offended that someone profiled me and passed judgment on the way that I sound or the way I, I dress. There are indicators of my American Citizenship. In fact, uh, just as we traveled abroad just uh, two weeks ago to Myanmar, I wore a, a USA soccer jersey. It, it said USA right across my, my chest as I was maybe the only Westerner in much of the place that we traveled in Myanmar. It was obvious that I was not from around these parts. You know, you know what I mean? I, I was an American, and I'm not offended by that because there are indicators of my citizenship. The same ought to be true spiritually. Our lives ought to be consistent with our heavenly citizenship. Have you ever been in a a public place, perhaps a restaurant or something, and you look across the way and you you think, I wonder if they're believers. I wonder if they're Christians. What is it that gives you that vibe? You don't even know. But you just, you're like, I think that family over there, I think they're Christians. 
You are writing a gospel, a chapter each day by the deeds that you do and the words that you say. Men, read what you write, whether faithful or true. Just what is the gospel according to you? It was in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 2 that Paul says, you are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by all men. Later in this very book, in in chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, Paul reiterates the same observation here and the same admonishment. In fact, look across the page to chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life or the gospel. And so more powerful than a stirring sermon is the consistent life of a believer. Folks, I would say to you, make make no mistake about this. The, The hypocrisy of Christians is always noted by the world. If it's the sin or the the fall of a clergyman, it becomes a a horrible scandal. Why? Because even the world knows intuitively what conduct is worthy or not worthy of the gospel. So Paul is saying that you need to be consistent in your your practice. That's the operative word here, consistent. Whether supervised or unsupervised, Paul said, whether I am with you or I only hear of your affairs while I'm apart from you, let the story be the same. Stand fast in your practice and be consistent in your conduct as a soldier of the cross, as a citizen of heaven. Secondly, each believer must have a consistent priority, a consistent priority, and an indispensable part of a believer's practice is the consistent priority given at the end of verse 27, the end of verse 27, for the faith of the gospel, the gospel of Christ, or the faith of the gospel. You see both of those phrases in verse 27. It's that divine body of truth that has been given to the church. Jude 3 calls it the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. And without this priority, Paul warned Timothy, in latter times, some will depart from the faith. And when they do, in the latter times, they will become perilous times, 2 Timothy chapter 3. So before behavior is belief, before orthopraxy, what we do, is orthodoxy, what we believe. Now, historically, Fourth Baptist Church has been committed to a consistent priority of preaching and teaching the truth of the gospel. And and may that always be the case. May we never give up that body of faith for a feeling of the body. May we consistently stand fast in the faith of the gospel. And may that priority establish our practice. You want to live a gospel-centered life? You need to make the gospel the priority in your life and certainly in the life of our our church. Uh, The believer's consistent practice is his behavior. The believer's consistent priority is the gospel. And we must stand fast in these things. I know I'm preaching to the choir, but perhaps it's worth bearing repeating as Paul wrote to the Philippians. Look at verse 27 again. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's the crown in my analogy this morning, so that whether I come and see you or whether I am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast as a soldier in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the the gospel. 
I would offer you number two, the believer must cooperate in striving for the gospel. We're going to stand fast in the gospel as a soldier. We're going to strive for the gospel. Now, we've got a number of of metaphors here that, that are getting mixed. Standing fast refers to soldiers. Conduct yourself refers to a citizen. And now striving, what might that refer to? How about an athlete? An athlete. Stand fast as a soldier, conduct yourself as a citizen, and strive as an athlete. And as part of the, the, this Roman colony, the Philippian readers would have been mindful of the Roman athletes, the Roman gladiators, that elite squadron of professional fighters. And the striving would give them that image. It's important here, the, the idea of striving together as a, as a team, striving together an athlete on a team. So uh, let me illustrate this point with a, with a different sport than, than the gladiators maybe fighting wild beasts in the Colosseum. I've never done that. You've never done that. But perhaps you have been part of a, another game of uh, professional athletes. You've participated in the egg toss competition. Have you ever played maybe at a Sunday school picnic or a family reunion or such? The egg toss. I think more often now we use the the water balloon toss. But imagine with me that we are are highly fit athletes in an egg toss competition. And the object, of course, is that you pick a partner and you line up across from one another. And the object is to throw the egg back and forth without breaking it. And, of course, the challenge comes that after every completed toss, what must you do? You must take a step back right, so that the distance grows with each consecutive toss. It becomes more and more difficult. Let's, let's assume that your egg-tossing partner is your spouse. Let's not do that. Uh, <laughs> let's, assume, let's assume that uh, that'll ruin my illustration here if, if we've got... Let's assume that I am your partner, and you and I are partners in the egg toss, and let's pretend that um, we begin throwing the egg back and forth, each time stepping farther and farther away from each other. Never do I re- worry, never do I worry that you're going to throw your, your hardest fastball at me, or your curveball, or your, your slider low and inside, be, because I, I don't need to worry that the knuckleball is going to break against my body, because the point of the game, the contest, is to preserve the egg, right? To guard or protect the crown. Again, in our, our illustration, we call it teamwork. And, and the unity of the spirit and mind that Paul calls the Philippians to in chapter 1, verse 27, is for the faith of the gospel. We're going to guard and protect the, the egg or the crown. And he calls the Philippians to cooperate in striving as an athlete for the faith of the gospel. But back to the egg toss. After making four or five successful tosses, I say to myself, I say, you know, I have been faithful in catching these, this egg now for at least five tosses. And I deserve some time off. And so the next time you throw the egg to me, I just step aside and I let it drop because you can't always expect me to catch the egg, right? I need a break. Or maybe I have a change of heart. Perhaps I yell across the lawn to you, hey partner, I think this game is boring. I quit. We've been doing the same thing over and over again. I'm out. Or maybe this. I never begin the game because I don't trust you. And 
how do I know that you won't steal the egg? Or that you might break the egg on me with your fastball or your slider or your knuckleball? Or perhaps I don't trust the one running the game. I think the game is rigged. And uh, I bet that one of those eggs is what? Is hard-boiled, right? You know there's always one that's hard-boiled, and they're cheating. So I'm not going to play. Can you, can you see what's happening here? And, and with this thinking, a fight ensues, and everyone, pardon the pun, walks away with egg on their faces because we don't want to play nice in the egg toss competition. The same koinonia was the Greek term translated fellowship or partnership earlier in chapter 1. The same partnership that Paul had with the Philippian believers earlier in chapter 1. I think I described it as if we were to begin a, a lemonade stand. You remember that from last week. It's the same partnership that he wants them to have in verse 27 as they strive together as athletes in the game, the cause of Christ. Look at verse 28. And not only, I'm sorry, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now hear in me. Number three, each believer can have confidence when suffering for the gospel. Each believer must be consistent in standing fast for the gospel. Each believer must cooperate in striving for the gospel. Each believer, now number three, can have confidence when suffering for the gospel. And the phrase there in verse 28, terrified by your adversaries. It doesn't mean scared to death or scared of death, although it's true that the Philippian believers would have been, had cause to be terrified by the, the prospect of beatings or imprisonments or even execution, but rather the term here is used of a, of a startled horse who bolts because of something perfectly harmless. Paul is saying, don't be spooked when you hear a noise in the dark. The bark is bigger than the bites. Remember that those things are a proof of our salvation. A proof of our salvation. Spiritual opposition is a sign. Spiritual persecution is a sign. The question is, how do you interpret that sign? So the contrast there in verse 28 is not their destruction and your salvation. The difference is the perception of the two groups of people regarding opposition or oppression or persecution. So follow this. From our opponent's perspective, our reaction tells them that we are doomed and gloom. We're doomed if they conquer. It's all doom and gloom. Oh, woe is me. I'm suffering. It's hopeless. And our opposition or our oppressors, the persecutors of the gospel, will say, look, they're running scared. They're demoralized. We've caught them off guard. They're frightened or terrified or spooked like the horse. However, from our perspective, we interpret it differently. We see this suffering as a sign of our salvation. You say, well, how so? That doesn't make any sense. Think about the evidences of, of your salvation. If you are born again by the Spirit of God, if you have been truly saved, regenerated by the Spirit of God, 
There ought to be a spiritual appetite that you have. That is normal for a living organism. You are alive spiritually and you are hungry spiritually. I hope that's an evidence or a sign of your Christian life. You should be experiencing spiritual growth. It it should somehow be measurable. You're not perfect. We'll never be perfect this side of heaven, but we're growing. I'm more like Christ this year than I was last year. Measurable growth. Another one, you should be demonstrating fruits of the Spirit. Bearing fruit is the result of abiding in the vine and and evidence of true conversion. But, But here's where I'm going with this. You should endure hardness or suffering as a Christian. And maybe that is opposition at work because of your witness at work. Maybe it's the assault of Satan by way of temptation. Maybe it's family who objects to your relationship with Jesus Christ. And whatever opposition or persecution or criticism or suffering that you experience ought to be assigned to you, giving you personal confidence and confirmation in your own salvation. That's what Paul says. He says, furthermore, it's a privilege to suffer. Your suffering is a proof of your salvation. It's also a privilege. You might remember Paul's passionate statement in Philippians 3, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. This was Paul's prayer. And the fellowship or the koinonia, the partnership of his sufferings. And it is a privilege to suffer because suffering is a gift from the Lord. Just as salvation is a gift, so also is suffering. And Paul had to write that to Timothy because we don't intuitively know that. Paul told Timothy, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Jesus made it clear during his earthly ministry saying, you will be hated because of me, my name. And even Peter reminds us of this in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 through 8. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Have you ever counted your suffering for your faith? which we have done very little of it, very little. This is almost a foreign idea to us, is a privilege. It's a privilege to suffer for the cause of Christ. Now, if you suffer because of your own stupidity, can't help you with that, right? If you're a fool, if you're unwise, if you make poor decisions and you suffer, fair enough. But suffering for the cause of Christ, that's a a privilege. And let her see, it's part of the same struggle there in verse 30, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. For all of redemptive history, the people of God who have believed the word of God, who have uncompromisingly proclaimed it and unyieldingly lived it, have often paid for it with their lives. And so we count it a privilege to suffer with those from the prophets to Jesus, the early Christians who have suffered. You are in good company. And the believers in Philippi, their suffering was an extension of the same suffering that Paul suffered, that Paul experienced. 
Listen to what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths often. Of the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes, save one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and in painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst and fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Are you kidding me? And now the Apostle Paul is imprisoned in the city of Rome and he's writing this letter to the Philippians and, and he's saying to them that they would have the very same struggle that Paul had. And that struggle and that suffering comes with protecting the gospel in the same way today as in centuries before us. In our world today, it's, it's social contempt, it's rudeness, maybe intolerance, maybe some public policy. But folks, read Fox's Book of Martyrs and be reminded what true Christian suffering, persecution, and martyrdom is. And there in Fox's Book of Martyrs, the stories of, of those who have been tortured and, and martyred for their faith. In fact, if you follow the ministry Voice of the Martyrs, we, we air their program here on WCTS Radio. You can go to their website. They track the, the suffering of persecution among Christians around the globe. And uh, it is very common around the world, perhaps still foreign to us. But Paul is inviting the Philippians to join in the partnership or the fellowship, the koinonia of Christ's sufferings as he did. So each believer can have confidence when suffering for the gospel. Now, your notes are complete and uh, you're ready to be done. But I, I want to conclude this morning by just reading for you an illustration, a story of, of 40 wrestlers for Christ. You've heard this before, but it's, it's a powerful story. You listen as I read. It was in the days of the Roman emperor Nero. There lived and served him a band of soldiers known as the Emperor's Wrestlers. Fine stalwart men they were, picked from the best and the bravest of the land, recruited from the great athletes of the Roman amphitheater. In the great amphitheater, they upheld the arms of the emperor against all challengers. Before each contest, they stood before the emperor's throne. Then through the courts of Rome rang their cry, We the wrestlers, wrestling for thee, O emperor, to win for thee the victory and from thee the victor's crown. When the great Roman army was sent to fight in faraway Gaul, no soldiers were braver or more loyal than this band of wrestlers led by their centurion Vespasian. But news reached Nero that many Roman soldiers had accepted the Christian faith. Therefore, this decree was dispatched to the centurion Vespasian. If there be any among your soldiers who cling to the faith of the Christians, they must die. The decree was received in the dead of winter. The soldiers were camped on the shore of a frozen inland lake. It was with a sinking heart that Vespasian, the centurion, read the emperor's message. Vespasian called the soldiers together and asked the question, are there any among you who cling to the faith of the Christian? If so, let him step forward. Forty wrestlers instantly stepped forward two paces, respectfully saluted and stood at attention. Vespasian paused. He had not expected so many nor such select ones. 
Until sundown, I shall await your answer, said Vespasian. But sundown came, and again the question was asked. Again, the 40 wrestlers stepped forward. Vespasian pleaded with them long and earnestly without prevailing upon a single man to deny his Lord. Finally, he said, the decree of the emperor must be obeyed, but I am not willing that your comrades should shed your blood. I'm going to order you to march out upon the lake of ice, and I shall leave you there to the mercy of the elements. Forty wrestlers were stripped and then, falling into columns of four, marched toward the center of the lake of ice. As they marched, they broke into the chant of the arena. Forty wrestlers, wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory and from thee the victor's crown. Through the long hours of the night, Vespasian stood by his campfire and watched. As he waited through the long night, there came to him fainter and fainter the wrestler's song. As morning drew near, one figure, overcome by exposure, crept quietly toward the fire. In the extremity of his suffering, he had renounced his Lord. Faintly but clearly from the darkness came the song. Thirty-nine wrestlers, wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory and from thee the victor's crown. Vespasian looked at the figure drawing close to the fire. Perhaps he saw eternal light shining there toward the center of the lake, who can say? But off came his helmet and his clothing. He sprang upon the ice, crying, Forty wrestlers, wrestling for thee, O Christ, to win for thee the victory, and from thee the victor's crown. And emboldened by those believers, he joined them to his own demise. Folks, we have been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ, it has changed our lives. It has saved us for eternity. It has reconciled us to God. It is incumbent upon us to be consistent in standing fast for the gospel, to be cooperating and striving for the gospel, and to have confidence when suffering for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray. God in heaven, I ask that you would embolden us as as soldiers of the cross, as citizens of heaven, as athletes striving, as gladiators, as those that are willing to stand even in the face of persecution or opposition, where we all can see how things are trending in our world. We all watch how things are tracking in our our own country and we anticipate The day will come when we will have to stand boldly in defense of the gospel. May you give us the courage to do that even today. For I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.